So the talk tonight is going to be about the ten perfections continued. Any questions about the meditation instruction, especially for those of you who are new or been here a while? Particularly about the meditation instruction or the process of meditation. Yes. I have a question about the kind of the comparative quality of meditation and breath mm-hmm. and the meta meditation. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's different. Um, what I'm curious about. It's both different and not different. Okay. And you kind of led into that already in the beginning, mm-hmm. and my. I, I'll, I'll let you finish your question, but okay. I, I already kind of formulated an answer for you. <laughs> well, I want to, no, I mean, finish your question. I mean, I, earlier when you asked that question, I was like, yeah, that's something I, I want to touch on. Maybe we'll do some meta today, actually. Okay. But feel finish, Tyler, I'm sorry. <laughs> no um, so, so the a few weeks back, um, it was suggested, I forget from which instructor was suggested that, um, that counting, you know, one to ten and back down to one, mm-hmm. back to ten, um, can really be, you know, in a beginner's way, a good way to, mm-hmm. you know, aid in staying focused for longer. Mm-hmm. So I found that that really helps me. Great. All right. Um, I wander off less mm-hmm. and come back sooner, mm-hmm. right? Because the numbering actually stays in the background yeah. of my mind, so mm-hmm. it pulls me back quicker. Right. right. So, that I like for the development of the sati, right? the coming back, remember. Mm-hmm. Right? I really like the meta practice um, for other you know, reasons, but it's harder for me <coughs> to know what to come back to. I don't... With what? With the meta. Uh-huh. Um, because my focus isn't really on my breath with the meta as much. It's more with the message as I'm cycling. The phrases. Message. Yeah, the phrases. The phrases are the grounding. So counting, in breath one, out breath two, or however you do it, in breath one, out breath, well, it's usually so just like... It, the phrases are longer than my breath, so uh-huh. I'll split it into two breaths, mm-hmm. right? Right. And, um, but the phrase, or the counting, or the sensation at the tip of the nose, it's all actually concentration, samadhi. So you're the, the, you're asking about you're saying sati. Sati is the remembering that you're when your mind has wandered off, and you bring it back to the whatever the uh, present time experience is that you're bringing attention to, right? So uh, you're not far off because they, I mean, they really they work together. But that's what I'm. What, so what I was what I was gonna say earlier when you said that is, and they actually are the same thing. It's just what you're giving attention to. So whether it's the breath or uh, the, the counting, or whether it's may I be happy, may I be free from suffering, you know, may I be safe, may I be at ease. Uh, when the mind wanders off, oh yeah, I, w- I wish I was at ease because this happened when I was this and that and the past and this and that, then you're, oh, I'm lost. Oh, that's sati, that's, that's mindfulness, right? Remember, and then coming back to the concentrated, may I be at ease, may I be happy, may I be safe. So we're using those phrases in the grounding in the same way as you would use any other of the things that we, tools, you know, they're all tools. So 
play with that a little bit. Use counting for a while, then maybe go to phrases or do both uh, at different different sits for yourself. Um, experiment with it for yourself. But my experience, because I thought they were very different, and there are some things that are different about them. Um, I'm not going to get into that right now, but uh, because more will be revealed. Yeah. And so what I want to say is like, so experiment with both of them, and what you might see is that they do start to blend together. But that's something again, you know this this whole road of meditation and Buddhism and uh, what is enlightenment and freedom from suffering. It's all very, uh, it seems very like we want to grasp it with this knowing mind, and you just can't. I'm sorry, but you just can't. You can get certain concepts enough to take the next step, right? Uh, enough to get, we have an abstract view, but at some point, we need to, what we have to do is we just have to be in the, and I know you do, I'm not saying this, is, this isn't about you, but just in general, it's a paradox. There's all this language explaining all this stuff. And at some point, and actually, um, I was just talking to uh, a friend of mine that's a meditator, uh, meditator as well, that's been really focusing on Anapanasati, this mindfulness of the in and out breath for many years. And then um, was reading something by uh, 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 Shambhala, uh, was it uh, Trungpa, uh, who was saying, you know, at some point you need to abandon the breath. And she was like, abandon the breath? It's been my savior. Abandon it? Because at some point it's just a tool. And there's this story from the Buddha uh, that says, um, you know, you use a raft. To get from one shore to the other shore. But then you don't pick up the raft and carry it with you. Because you might need it again. You have to abandon the raft. And see what's next. So the tools, they're useful, right? Um, and so use them. And then, you know, you might find that they, that you can shift. And so language is kind of the same way. We can conceptually understand these things. But then at some point we need to just let go of the conception. And really just be in the experience of and hopefully that's helpful. I don't know. For some people that are new, they're like, what the hell is that guy talking about? I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. <laughs> I have a loose conception. No, I'm just playing. Please. Yes. Uh, so as we're going through the meditation, meditation and <coughs> thoughts come through minds and Yeah, I mean, it's Albert Einstein called them epiphanies. You know, these moments where we can be relaxed enough to let go of trying to figure shit out. And when we actually stop trying to figure it out, then we will have these moments of clarity. Right In the uh, 12-step tradition, they call them moments of clarity. You know, uh, or spiritual awakenings, or uh, or just deeper understanding. Uh, there is a teacher um, named Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu who called them little nibbanas, little moments of freedom. 
The key is that you have the insight and then you just let it, you come back to the breath. You don't hold on to it. You don't grasp to it, right? Uh, if it's really an insight, you know it'll be there in 20 minutes when the bell rings and then you can maybe write it down. Or, but uh, this is where people, I think, get they get misguided uh, as they feel like, oh, that was a really good insight. And it, it might be. But uh, to not get in the head about it, but actually just kind of feel it. Oh, allow it, allow it to be. That's what I love. That that instruction is my favorite instruction. It's pretty the it's pretty much the only one that uh, I use when in my own practice is relax, observe, allow. So you're observing, you know. Oh, this is I'm, I have a moment of clarity, and then can you allow it to just both be there as long as it's there and pass when it needs to pass. Because then maybe there's another insight. But who knows? We don't know. But yes. Is that helpful? It's different than figuring something out. You know, I often, I say the the Rubik's Cube of the mind or the Sudoku of the mind. Oh, what if there's this problem and what if I just, you know, break this apart and put it back together and break it and do this and do that and shift this way and shift that way. Because that's what we think about doing when we're in meditation so often. It's like, oh, this is such a great time. I'm calm. I'm relaxed. I've got nothing to do till the bell rings. I don't even have to look at the clock. I can just figure a lot of stuff out right now. (laughs) And then the question is, and this is always the question that I uh, uh, like to ask myself, is, is that helpful? Really? Is it helpful? Is it actually aiming towards uh, freedom from suffering? Less agitation? Less stress? Is it really or is it, am I having a, a very stressful, uh, kind of agitated uh, meditation you know, or experience? And so we have to ask ourselves that, you know, because I, I don't have that answer. Each person has to figure that out for themselves. Because sometimes, like you were saying, it is skillful to go, oh, let's look at that. Oh, that's helpful. But... Do we lock onto it? You know, that's the key. Do we build stress around it? Stress is such an interesting thing. The word dukkha can be translated to stress. There's some teachers that do that. Uh, I think it's a little abstract to call it stress. But it's a health, it's helpful to think of, you know, mental anguish, stress, anxiety, dissatisfaction. Lots of different ways to talk about it. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later. There's like a doing and there's a non-doing. You know, there's a doing we have to do here. Right? We have to sit, try not to move, follow the breath, aim the attention. And then there's a non-doing, which is not, not trying to figure out what's happening while we're doing it. We're just being with what's happening. The non-doing. Yes. Say your name, please. Carolyn. Carolyn. When you say trying not to move, my brain instantly thought of that I'm still doing it. I'm trying not to move. Right. There's a doing, and there's a non-doing. The doing is that we're trying not to move, we're aiming our attention on our breath, 
You know what I mean? And then, but there's also, there's a letting go. There's a relaxing into. And if you have to move, you have to move. You know what I mean? But I was just kind of uh, being joking a little bit about that. Because, you know, there's this idea of like, it is actually really helpful to try to be very still. Because uh, some, there's some insights that can come from that. But it's also sometimes uh, helpful to move. So, yeah. You had a question? And then, and then we're going to actually move on into a topic for a little bit. But yeah, this is all along the same line, so that's fine. Um, I noticed that I can, can stay with the action of breath pretty well. Mm-hmm. But when I start to really try to kind of notice the quality, I sort of spin off into this really kind of verbal pattern where I'm, I'm, I'm not really experiencing, I'm describing to myself uh-huh, uh-huh. what's going on. Yeah. Um, and it's like I'm uh, it's uncomfortable to just let it happen. Like I need to make it solid or real or something. Uh-huh. Um, do you need to working with that? What's the problem with that? Right. Uh, I'm just wondering, man. Is it unsettling for you? Do you feel like you're doing it wrong? I mean, I'm not sure. It's just constant. It's like this constant hum, and I can't just relax. Uh huh. Okay. There's there's always somebody chattering. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So if I'm hearing you right, what what I actually asked you to do is, you know, kind of like use curiosity, like be curious of the breath, which is a focusing technique on present time awareness, right? Because where is the breath happening? Right now. Nowhere else. And so when we're aiming our attention, we're actually focusing our attention on the quality of each breath. But not getting lost in, oh, that was a short breath. Oh, the last one was was a long breath. Oh, my breath is feeling really, you know deep right now I wonder if that's because I'm really meditating great you know like whatever like we're not getting into this kind of extra thinking but just the bare experience of you know uh, you know breath moving in oh feeling the coolness um, maybe the breath feels heavy you know this kind of descriptors can be fine yeah and to not you know but what but if it's unsettling then maybe back off of it try not to Try not to. That's really uh, the reason why I gave that is because there's so many new people in the room, and so what happens is that sometimes when we're new, the thoughts are just going off, right? The stories of yesterday and tomorrow and history and mystery and fantasy and you know all of the anything to get away from this breath. And it, and if there ever is focus of the breath, it's just you know oh I'm tired, <laughs> right? So using the quality of curiosity of the present moment is always going to help any of us to be more uh, aware, more present, more here. And if it becomes uh, tight, then let it go. Yeah, let it go. And go back to relax, observe, allow. Just this kind of, uh, uh, in the back of the mind, like what happens for me is, sometimes I'll get into that because I, I need to. My mind is feeling lazy and kind of sleepy and so I'll be like, oh, what's, you know, this is sleepy. I turn awareness to sleepy. Be curious. What's sleepy like? Oh, there's this, my, my eyes are really heavy. I feel some warmth behind my neck, you know, like, uh, what else can I notice? Oh, the coolness of the fan. You know, just being present time, as curious as you can, will help. And if it doesn't help and it causes stress, let it go.
Yeah, I know that was a great question. They're all great questions. This all kind of leads into a little bit about um, my topic. Uh, I was going through, I feel like I'm forcing right now, I'm forcing a, a, a movement from this great conversation about present time awareness to what I've been doing, which is going through the 10 perfections. And I'm just going to do that, I guess. I just wanted to name that I'm, I'm doing that. And then, and then that it does. It feels a little uncomfortable. Like we could have this conversation. Um, but there are, I also feel like it's important to talk about uh, and kind of keep moving through the ten perfections. And today is actually wisdom as the uh, ten perfections. What are the ten perfections? The potamis, they're called. The potamis are considered the qualities that the Buddha... Um, over lifetimes perfected and is what's needed uh, to perfect in order to become awakened, to uh, be completely relieved of suffering that, and to become what's called an arahant or a Buddha. Uh, an arahant is um, like, a Buddha, like the Buddha's disciple. Like this, anyone who has become enlightened after the Buddha is considered an arahant. So just to share the difference a little bit. And so just to go through them, because you guys will find these, these qualities are found uh, everywhere within Buddhism and other spiritual traditions. You know, But um, I'll just run through all ten of them and then I'll focus back on uh, wisdom. So the first is giving. Uh, oh, the other thing about this is that uh, they're considered to be um, in a list from uh, hardest I mean, from easiest to hardest, from you know, so the the less difficult to perfect to the most difficult to perfect. So giving or dana generosity is considered uh, the first of uh, the qualities. Virtue or morality, sila, it's often called, is considered uh, the second. The third is renunciation or relinquishment. And those of you who were uh, here yesterday, actually, um, got, I think that uh, Aya Santusika gave a really, some really good examples of uh, working with renunciation. And I talked about that. These are all recorded, so you can look at find them all on the website. So, And then the fourth this week is wisdom, or panya. Um, the fifth of these is considered energy, or uh, often called uh, avirya, or energy. The sixth is patience. The seventh is truthfulness. The eighth is determination, which is different than energy. Um, the ninth is loving kindness. And the tenth is uh, equanimity. So each week I'm going through one of them and talking a little bit about them. And, and then we'll, we'll see where we get. So just to um, so this list uh, it can be found in the suttas, uh, which are the Buddhist teachings that are have were uh, passed down from generation to generation. That's why they're all in lists, actually, uh, so that they were uh, easy to remember or easier to remember. Uh, and there's something like uh, thirty-seven lists in total. And if you really think about it, the way that um, it's often described. Or the way that I often describe it. Well, the way that it's 
technically described or uh, traditionally described is that the uh, if you take the elephant footprint, if you take an elephant's footprint and you put all other animal on the planet besides maybe dinosaurs, so ones that are alive now still, uh, their footprint in the elephant's footprint, that it will all fit. And so that the the uh, all of the Buddhist teachings can be found within the Four Noble Truths, which is the elephant's footprint, and then all of the other subsequent teachings can be found within the Four Noble Truths, or be, you know, separate. So that is one way. And I think about them as Russian dolls. Like there's those that, those big Russian dolls. And I, I don't know where I got this, but I like it. It's always been my description. Where you like take one and you take out the big Russian doll and then there's two. And then you take off their heads and then there's four. And you take off the heads and then there's six. And they get all the way down to these little... See, I think my grandmother had one or something. And I just thought it was so cool when I was a kid. It would be like, there's another one. Oh, wow, there's another one. And it's kind of the way that this practice is that uh, you know we unpack more and more and it gets more and gets fine-tuned and fine-tuned and fine-tuned and as simple as just follow the breath um, breathing in breathing out and follow that to awakening without ever hearing any any of the other things that tool loving kindness that tool concentration that tool affordable truths that tool Using the potomies, the ten perfections, that tool. So they're all different ways of looking. So wisdom, so the quality of wisdom has this characteristic of penetrating the real and specific nature of things. The real and specific nature of things. And it's basically said that... uh, if you have sila, you have a um, ethical integrity in the way that you live your life. Uh, that you, your mind will be able to settle and you can attain what's called samadhi, which is concentrated, uh, focused awareness of present time. Which through that, those two together, panya, wisdom, arises. You will begin to then see the, speci- the specific nature of phenomena. I have found that to be true. But you have to see that for yourself, right? That's the thing, where it's like it's not esoteric, it's really experiential. Mm. So the characteristic is uh, known as sure penetration. In other, in other words, penetrating into the reality of things. Things as they really are is the one of the ways that it's really described. Uh, we let go of the stories. We let go of the, uh, the preconceived notions of things. One of the ways it's described is... Um, like an arrow shot by a skilled archer, penetrating to the center, the reality of that which is true. The Dharma, the word Dharma, uh, or Dhamma, depending on your orientation, means truth in nature. So the truth of things found in nature. Or, the, or it, in other words, it can be uh, the nature of truth could also be a way of thinking about it or talking about it. 
its function, wisdom, its function in Buddhism is to illuminate the objective field like a lamp. So we're removing or we're uh, stepping out of our subjective view of the world and beginning to see the objective. Which can be very helpful, very enlightening. Its manifestation is considered non-confusion. So, wisdom, without wisdom, what do we have? Confusion. Some people say ignorance, right? Now, different than knowledge from the Buddhist perspective. Knowledge is uh, helpful, but knowledge uh, without that kind of uh, that penetrating and seeing clearly into the reality of things is still kind of subjective and it's also, uh, I don't know, it's just it's a, out of grasp, it feels to me. Book knowledge, I think, is really helpful. Um, but it's not considered wisdom. Wisdom, I think, uh, uh, we can all agree, uh, is often considered the... Knowledge of things and the experience of that knowledge coming into play. Like I can tell you all about relationships and all these books I've read about relationships, but until I've been able to actually have a successful one, I don't really have any wisdom about it. (laughs) Right? That's kind of a that's a way to think about it. And I really think about that. That it actually is the the place where those two come into contact. Knowledge and experience, which can only happen through practice. Uh, one of my teachers, uh, Ajahn Pasano, who is the abbot of Abhayagiri Buddhist Monastery, which we're uh, going to be going on a field trip to. You're all invited. Um, he, I was talking with him once about. Uh, uh, you know, book knowledge and this like studying of the suttas and the dharma and the teachings versus practice. And he said, because uh, I, I had very little book knowledge and some more of the experience. I'm, I'm much more of an experiential type person anyway. And I meditated for years without knowing anything. I didn't even know about Buddhism. I thought, you know, Buddha was the Chinese happy Buddha that you see. Uh, you know, I thought that was the actual Buddha. And I didn't really know anything about Buddhism. Um, and he said, you know, little bit of book knowledge, a lot of experience. This is helpful. This is, this is what it takes to gain wisdom. Um, and of course, his teacher, Ajahn Chah, uh, was studied as a Buddhist scholar, but rejected most of it and just went into the forest and just experienced the reality of things. So, wisdom's manifestation is non-confusion, like a guide in a forest, is the one of the ways it's talked about. Uh, concentration, or the Four Noble Truths, are its proximate cause. So we will begin to see, we'll begin to gain concentration, and see the Four Noble Truths, which, uh, in Buddhism, is wisdom. Mm-hmm. Seeing the Four Noble Truths, which are, just to kind of put them out there, 
that there is suffering in this life and that it has to be known. We can't deny it. We can't look away from it. We can't avoid it. We have to have it be known that there is suffering, that there is a cause to that suffering. And that cause is selfish and self-centered craving. What the Buddha called tanha. Tanha actually means thirst. Unquenchable thirst. So suffering is caused by this uh, unquenchable thirst. That some people can act, that can be translated to many different things, right? Um, but it's that kind of constant grasping, grasping, grasping. Oh yeah, this is good, but I want, this is good, but I, you know, like an eight-year-old, right? Or a six-year-old. That's never satisfied with the toy they have. They always want the toy that they, that you have. That's a, that's a kind of suffering. And then there's the kid that just plays with dirt. <laughs> right? <laughs> Are they suffering? There's a good movie called Happy that's on um, Netflix. That's pretty. It's a pretty good one to watch. You guys just watched it, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You liked it? Yeah. yeah. It's worth seeing. Yeah. It kind of talks a little bit about like what is it that actually makes us happy? Is it the things? So the Four Noble Truths. So the Second Noble Truth, this selfish and self-centered craving uh, known as Tanha, first. The Third Noble Truth is that there is a, a cessation. There is uh, an end to that suffering. It is possible. It can happen. It has happened for lots of people. So that's good news. A lot of the ways the way I like to think about it is the first noble truth. There is suffering in this world. Not all life is suffering, which is a mistranslation, but that there is suffering in this world. We are, and we are all subject to it. It's part of being human. Welcome to being human. In that same manifestation as being human, we also have uh, what it takes to be free from that suffering, which is a mind and a heart. And a body that we can explore. So the first noble truth, uh, I like to think of it as uh, the ailment. The second noble truth is the uh, the diagnosis. The third noble truth is the prognosis. Prognosis is good. We can be free. From suffering. We can be free from causing our own suffering again and again and again. We can be free from that. We just have to do the steps, quite literally. And the fourth noble truth is the prescription, which is known as the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path, like I said earlier, basically breaks down to three things. Live in a non-harming ethical way, which I talked about last week. Also be generous and um, live in a non-harming ethical way. Develop uh, a mind that is free of uh, stress through uh, mindfulness, sati, and samadhi, concentration together. 
and also I would also I would I would say also loving kindness compassion they come in they all are kind of in a different package in a different list it's called bhavana bhavana means uh, 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 like the meditative practices all contemplative meditative practices are considered bhavana so it's even a bigger than uh, samadhi is kind of pointed and sati uh, mindfulness is kind of a little bit broad but focused and then bhavana is considered kind of all of the techniques all of the tools that the Buddha gave and he gave a lot of them is this helpful? is this making sense? Yeah. okay if it's not, ask a question if you're not clear okay. so this wisdom found in the Four Noble Truths is the actually the end of the uh, uh, or the last piece which is that we'll gain wisdom we'll gain Panya through the effort of the first two and then this breaks down and I'm not going to break down to all of the kind of eight steps of the path right now because I'm talking about perfections the potamis as a practice but I will talk about one of the ways that I think um, we can all relate to, which is right there in meditation. And actually, I think it affects us out in meditation and not in meditation. And it's something that we can all tangibly work with that the Buddha called the hindrances. The things that hinder us from our own peace and ease. So one of my teachers, Ajahn Pasano, uh talks about that the mind, uh, its natural resting place is peace and ease. Kind of like if you go into the forest and there's no extreme weather, there is a natural peace and ease that can be found there. Yet, when conditions come, causes and conditions that blow or rain or lightning or fire or whatever, it's there's a ruckus. So these hindrances are kind of like the stormy weather of our hearts and minds. So I'm just going to focus on that. So I'm just going to actually have time to just name them today. Maybe I'll get back to it a little bit later. I'm sure I will get back to it again. So the word uh, hindrance is used because they hinder the proper functioning of the mind and clear seeing. So this wisdom gets obstructed. So from the Buddhist perspective, actually, um, my one of my teachers, Noah Levine, calls this the excavation process. That we're excavating the wisdom that's already there. And there's actually a Zen teaching that says, stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you can't know. Just stop talking and thinking. No big deal. <laughs> Let me just work on that for the next 25, 30 years. That is what this practice ultimately boils down to. Stop talking and thinking, and there's nothing you can't know. Allow the wisdom to arise. Zen can be pretty pithy sometimes. I like that. So these are the things that get in the way, though. 
They might sound familiar. You might have experienced them today. Sensual desire, fantasy, craving, wanting. Aversion, this dislike, this pushing away, this avoidance of the present moment, of uncomfortable, of anything. Present, this uh, aversion. Uh, Anger or ill will is part of the aversion. Sloth and torpor, which really means kind of sleeping, sleepiness, laziness, laziness of the mind, um, sluggishness of the mind. Then there's restlessness or remorse, this kind of agitation, distraction. That these are all things that hinder us from uh, the peace and ease that is the natural state of the mind and heart. It's kind of a trip to think about it that way, right? Like that whole, like, just get out of your own way. Sounds good. Just get out of your own way. Doubt. Doubt's a big one. Doubt is this questioning, this lack of belief in the benefit of meditation, actually. This questioning. Now, not inquiry. Inquiry is extremely helpful, and the Buddha was uh, very clear that it's important to, qu- to question in a, in a healthy way, but not to get be so skeptical that you won't settle on any practice. Right? But to ask yourself, does this work? Does this work for me? Is this helpful? Is it actually working to relieve suffering? And if not, like I was saying earlier, if like that, like that one particular practice was causing you stress, let it go. Find some, you know, open and let let another practice come in, or do some instruct, you know, do some questioning, do some inquiry, find another practice that's helpful. This particular meditation style may not be helpful for you. I I think it's pretty helpful. It is actually what the Buddha taught, so it seems to work what people are saying but I don't know if that's true for you or is it just doubt so these are the hindrances and so uh, when we can work with the hindrances um, it's actually very similar to this mindfulness practice Uh, just the basic kind of breath the body or the mind wanders off thoughts distractions whatever we can check in when we recognize that our attention has one. First, we have to recognize, right? <laughs> That's usually the first insight of meditation. Holy shit, my mind is out of control, <laughs> right? Does whatever the hell it wants. Goes here, goes there, stuff from my childhood, things about the future that I didn't even want to think about, like, just goes wherever it wants. Yeah, that's the first insight. So if you've had that, you're on your way. And then when we cannot doubt or blame ourselves, oh, I I can't do this. I can't do this meditation stuff. My mind is way out of control. When we can see that, oh, it's not just me. It's just the mind. It's not your mind. It's just the mind. It's, there's like some hope that comes up for me anyway. When I realize oh, I'm not the only one. Yeah. Otherwise, I would have given this up a long time ago. 
Let me end with, I think this is appropriate maybe for what we're talking about right now. Some words from the Buddha called Luminous Mind. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. And so for them, there is cultivation of mind. So this luminous mind, I think is a metaphor for what the Buddha is talking about, this wisdom, this kind of peace and ease that can be found. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.